Welcome to The Point. I'm Mindy Todd. In September of 2023, former Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution engineer Laurel O'Hara launched into space and arrived at the International Space Station. Last month, from the ISS, Laurel joined her former HUI colleagues for a discussion about the parallels between deep sea and space exploration. Thanks to NASA and HUI, we bring you that conversation. The presentation starts with HUI Director of Research Communication, Ken Costell. We're going to be journeying today from the ocean to outer space, and we're going to connect exploration here on Earth to exploration in near-Earth orbit and beyond. It's rare to be genuinely as happy as we were uh, when somebody of the quality of Laurel O'Hara comes and says that she's going to be leaving us. And we were happy because we knew how much she wanted to be an astronaut, how hard she worked for it, and what a genuine asset she would be to the team at NASA and to the National Astronaut Corps. So there were a lot of very, very proud people in the audience watching in May of 2017 when she was named to the 22nd NASA astronaut class, whose fun fact, their, uh, their, their mascot is the turtle. And there were even more people watching as she progressed through her, uh, through her training and eventually launched in December to the International Space Station. But our connection with Laurel isn't the only connection that we make between the ocean and outer space. And I wanted to take some time here to briefly uh, tell you about a couple of those before Laurel joins us. First, we're going to have Bruce Strickrot up to talk about the spirit of human exploration embodied in the deep submergence vehicle Alvin, that HUI operates, and that, uh, uh, that Laurel worked on while she was here. Then Julie Huber will come up and tell you a little bit about some special organisms in the deep ocean and what they can tell us about what might be living beyond Earth. Bruce Strickrat is the manager uh, and lead submersible pilot of the Alvin program. Since joining the Alvin team in 96, he's made more than 400 dives, which is the second most in the history of the program. But more importantly, he's carried hundreds of, of scientists engineers and students into the deep ocean. And for all that work, he has a species of hagfish named after him. Welcome. And, and what an honor to be here to speak uh, with Laurel or about Laurel and about the technology that we use to take people to space. Uh, I was really thrilled when Laurel got accepted. I, I almost, I'm certain she was, she's the perfect choice. Uh, and I have always loved the whole space program. So how wonderful to have someone we know up in space and it'd be great to see her again. So we're really happy about that. Um, I'm an engineer, and I love technology since I was a kid. Just playing with machines was something I really loved to do. Found myself in a job that lets me express that. And what a cool machine Alvin is. It's come a long way over the years, and it is, in effect, a spaceship of the deep. It has a lot of the same characteristics in sort of an engineering sense, and we'll briefly talk about that. I only have a short period of time. But I'm going to try to share with you some of the interesting analogs between taking people down in the bottom of the ocean and taking people up into space. So a lot of folks don't know what a deep submergence vehicle is. This is something I've experienced during many presentations. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard of Alvin before. But in, in, in brief, they're high-tech underwater spaceships. They're designed to take people into a crazy environment with extremely high pressures. Uh, they take humans to the deepest parts of the ocean. We're taking people all the way down to the deepest parts of the ocean with Alvin and even deeper with some of the other submersibles that are out there operating today. Uh, 
They have no physical connection to the surface ship. Once you get in the sub, we have the freedom to move around as much as we can. We, we have to talk to the surface and get permission to move to certain places. But we're not physically attached. And we have to bring our life support with them. So one of the things when you go into the ocean or you go into the space, you have to bring your environment with you. And you encapsulate that inside the sub, and you have to treat it just like you would in space. You have to add the oxygen and scrub carbon dioxide out, and you have to keep it at manageable levels. And we do that all day for about nine hours. Uh, I, I wanted to mention that I'm fortunate to work with a vehicle I love because we can get it and drive it around. But here at Woods Hole, we operate the National Deep Submergence Facility that has two companion vehicles. One is the ROV Jason, which allows people to operate from the surface ship. You can put a whole room of people in to watch real time and experience what we experience in the sub, but do it up on the surface ship. It's a remarkable machine. It does amazing work. And the other one is the AUV Sentry, which is a, a robotic vehicle that we can program. It'll travel around and, and do sensing and imaging, and it can do navigation and mapping that we take and embed into the submarine, get these amazing high-tech maps that make our ability to do our work that much better. So it's not the only, Galvin's not the only game in town, but I'm partial to being able to actually take people and, and bring them down. A little history, Alvin's been working since 1964. The program started in 64. It's been continuous. It was underwater with people before people went into space. And it's still doing that. I think that's something amazing. It's a testament to the people who started the program and folks that have kept it going. And with the new sub, we're looking at easily another 50 plus years doing this work. So some stats I thought that were applicable when you're talking about space and underwater. We go down to 21,325 feet, four miles. Uh, 14,500 pounds per square inch on all the outside of the vehicle. And we did a little number here. The hatch is a 21 inch disc. And I wanted to know what the force was holding that hatch shut when we're down in the bottom of the ocean. The numbers in the neighborhood of over three and a half million pounds of force on the hatch. And I can't imagine three and a half million pounds of force. So I looked up the weight of a fully loaded 747. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of three of those stacked up on a 21-inch ditch, ditch, disc hatch, right? And there's Frieder. Frieder knows. We've been together in the sub. You couldn't open that hatch if you needed to. So that alludes to this, how do you use a bathroom in a six-foot sphere with two other people when you can't open the hatch and there's nowhere to go? The only answer I can give you is very carefully. And I, I suspect that's some of the same conversation that Laura would have if she describes some of the things that they have to deal with in zero gravity. 644 atmospheres. This is one area we get a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. We, we get 644 atmospheres of delta. Astronauts only have to deal with one. But they get a great ride up and back, right? Three lucky humans. I like to use the word fortunate. Folks that dive in the sub, whether they're the scientists or the engineers or the pilots, we're really fortunate to have this experience. Uh, it, it, it take, we go to places that will change you, your understanding of the world. It's eye-opening, and I've been so honored to take so many people down and watch them have their first dive, and it's a remarkable thing. How do you become a pilot? Well, you need to be a technologist and have the ability to work, on, work at sea and fix things, and you've got to train for about two years. Right now, we've got two people. One just finished his solo dive, and he's getting ready for, a, for the, all the oral boards to qualify as a U.S. Navy certified pilot, and we have another person that's just right behind us. So we're about two pilots coming in here soon, but it's two years. We study every system on that sub to the point where we can draw it from memory, literally everything. It's an intense 
experience, and then they give you the keys to take people down. And occasionally you get visited by strange creatures. <laughs> this is a Christmas dive in 2019. And when we came to the surface, Mike Sessa, one of our swimmers, was dressed like Elf. And I got to tell you, it's very hard to swim in an Elf costume. <laughs> but we, we had no idea this was happening. And Christmas Day, we came up, and there's an Elf on the sub. So we have fun. And I think what's important is uh, two things. One, we work through the holidays many times, just like they do in space. And the folks out there have fun. We like to bring a little humor into our work. Mike is a hero, by the way, for swimming as Elf. And uh, this is a, is a metaphorical statement, which means I'm trying to make a point, but also show you some things. Here's Alvin at night in the hangar, and we've got a few of the lights on. Uh, Julie will talk to this. The deep ocean is black. 200 meters down, you lose light. So everything's in the dark down there. We have to bring our light. And we have lots of light, and that's how we can see things and do our sampling. But I think the technology also allows us to bring light on the deep. So without the ability to go down there and see it, whether it's with Jason or with the AUV or Alvin, we would just have these vague assumptions about what the bottom looks like. And we've learned so much, and the, the bottom is so dramatic and so inspiring. We, the technology is the key to that. And the other thing is, this is one of the things I think is very important in an analog with, with the work in space. And this is Carl Sagan. He's one of my heroes. I think this is a great quote. We're in very bad trouble if we don't understand the planet we are trying to save. And we need to do that in all ways. We need to look at it from above the planet, and we need to get down into the bottom of it and look at it from there. We, uh, we have time for a couple of questions. If anyone has any in the audience for Bruce, um, while we get a mic to you, I wanted to ask you, Bruce, 400 dives, what stands out for you as the mo most amazing places to take the sub? Well, this, this particular trip I was out diving on was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 150 plus voyages I've gone out diving with the sub. And I have a few trips that were really number one. This dive series was amazing. The Galapagos is an amazing place. And diving right around the islands was something no one had done, or at least not with Alvin. So that, that's a standout. Um, you know, I remember my first dive and what that was like. It wasn't very productive, but it was in the Guaymas Basin diving around tube worms, and I was good enough to make the sub go down and come back up, but not very good about sampling. And you know, over the years, you learn how to become a pilot after you're qualified as a pilot. So that was a standout. Uh, I've had the opportunity to take so many people down on their first dives. And th those are the dives that have changed me throughout my career, because the people that are going in the submarine have waited for a long time to get that experience. And if you're taking them on their first dive, you have this opportunity to, to, to show them an experience that they've been waiting for years. So I don't have many favorites. I just have that experience that I, I see, and I'm going to do it again. You're the, the new scientist down there, and you turn the lights on, and they get to see these places, and you watch it change them, and they'll never forget it. Is there any sort of effect that... Uh that many dives at such deep levels have on the human body that, say, a layman wouldn't think about or know? It's a good question. For the most part, the answer is no, provided that you, you stay in shape enough to be able to, to be in the sub all day like that for, for many days. We're, the next trip I'm doing, I'll be in every other day. But I'll tell you what, the way I've sat in that sub for years, I found out that I moved my right foot in a particular direction. So now my right foot on certain days reminds me of that. And I think I have a future where my right foot will be the, the reminder of many, many days in the sub.
That was Bruce Strickrot talking about his work as a submersible pilot. He's the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's Alvin Program Manager. Coming up after a break, Huey marine biologist Julie Huber talks about discovering life at the deepest parts of the ocean and parallels between searching for life there and within our solar system. Stay with us. You're listening to The Point. On today's special broadcast, we bring you a presentation hosted by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution about the parallels between visiting and studying the deep sea and space exploration. In the final segment of the show, former Huey engineer and current NASA astronaut Laurel O'Hara joins the discussion from the International Space Station. O'Hara is a former engineer in the Huey Robotics and Submersible Department. But first, Huey marine microbiologist Julie Huber talks about discovering life in the deepest parts of the ocean and parallels between the search for life there and within our solar system. Here again is Huey Director of Research Communication, Ken Costell. Julie Huber is a marine microbiologist, but she doesn't study any microbes in the ocean. She studies the things that thrive in places that we would consider some of the most extreme environments on the planet, um, and yet they just seem to love it like a spring day down there. Uh, these places are hot, highly acidic or highly alkaline, perpetually dark, um, and under constant pressure. And this is important because prior to the 1970s, when these organisms were discovered, scientists thought that all life on Earth was ultimately reliant on the sun for energy. Uh, she's going to explain how their discovery, I think, set the stage for us to expand that view of life on Earth a little bit and to imagine how life could exist on moons of planets right here in our own solar system. Hi, everyone. Uh, I actually started my career here at the MBL with a fellowship from NASA. So here I am, full circle, about to see my friend up in space while talking about the ocean. So it's pretty great. Uh, so thanks for that wonderful introduction to the technology we use to study this marvelous blue planet, a place that I've been fascinated with since I was a little kid. And unlike all of you growing up here in Woods Hole, I grew up in Ohio. Uh, and so I think it is a great privilege to be here uh, studying the bottom of the ocean. And what I want to talk to you about today is what we're actually studying down there. So this is me sitting in Elvin, about a mile and a half beneath the ocean. This is many years ago. Uh, one thing Bruce didn't mention, it's actually quite cold down there. It might be very hot at the surface by the time you spend a lot of time at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you start putting on nerdy hats, but as you can see, I dress like a nerd too. Uh, so whether we're doing it this way or we're peering through the eyes of an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, uh, which is a way that, as you'll see, I also do my work. You know, I'm fundamentally interested in what is happening on the seafloor. And today I'm mostly going to be talking about underwater volcanoes because it's the best parallel we can make to searching for life beyond Earth. So Bruce already showed some of these spectacular black smokers. These are formed when seawater goes deep into the crust, reacts with hot magma, and it is altered chemically, and that then comes out and precipitates again on the seafloor. We are doing this work actually with a remotely operated vehicle. And as Bruce said, these fluids can get super hot and build these spectacular structures. But we can also get low temperature events, and that's usually where you find all this animal life. So this is footage from the Galapagos Spreading Center where hydrothermal vents were discovered in 1977. And this isn't distortion in the video. All that shimmer you see is warm water, and we call this diffuse flow. And these animals are positioned within the flow to take advantage of the chemical energy in there, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it's really important to understand that until this discovery in the late 70s, 
nobody thought life could exist this far away from the sun at the bottom of the ocean. So it fundamentally changed how we view life on Earth. This is probably an image you haven't seen before. This is an exploding volcano in the Western Pacific. No humans were put in danger when we got this footage. We used a remotely operated vehicle, I think for obvious reasons. This is about a mile beneath the surface. This is an active eruption. These are lava bombs exploding in the deep ocean. And until we made this observation about a decade ago, we had never witnessed it, despite the fact that most of the volcanism on our planet happens underwater. And then finally, this is this otherworldly site. This is Daikoku Volcano, which is in Japanese waters. And when I see this type of imagery, I'm just a curious person like most humans are. And I'm like, what is happening, right? How does this place work? What am I looking at? So I ask questions like, what are those rocks? What's all that yellow stuff, right? Off here, there's these weird flat fish. How is that fish living down in this environment? Right? How does this place compare to that other place I was at last year? And one of the privileges of being a scientist is being able to ask fundamental questions about how our planet works and what is happening. So with the technology that Bruce described, we have been discovering all sorts of new underwater volcanoes on our planet. This occurs globally on the seafloor. This is not an isolated process. As I mentioned, about 75% of the volcanism on our planet is actually happening underwater out of sight. And the geological setting is different, the rocks are different, the chemistry is different, and that means the life that can be supported is different. So I already mentioned this fundamental discovery that kind of churned biology on its end. And to understand that, we need to talk about the organisms closest to my heart, which are the invisible ones, uh, single-celled microorganisms, more commonly referred to as bacteria and archaea. So before we talk about what they're doing in this environment, I just wanna make clear what's happening here in the surface world. I'm assuming most of our Zoom audience is also living in the surface world. Um, maybe some of them are in space, maybe some of them, I don't know, are in a submarine, that would be great. But up here, what is happening, right, is organisms in the ocean, plants and trees, they're harnessing energy from the sun to produce both carbon and oxygen, right? These are two things that we all depend on very intimately. All animal life on our planet relies on oxygen and carbon produced by this process. Now, maybe you directly eat your vegetables, or maybe you would prefer to eat the cow that ate the vegetables. But no matter how you look at it, our life is intimately linked to this process going on at the top, which I assume everybody knows is called what? Photosynthesis, right? This is what we are taught textbook. This is how life on Earth you know, survives and thrives. But what do we do when we take away the sun, right? What happens at the bottom of the ocean? As Bruce said, it is dark after about 200 meters. So what is happening at 5,000 meters? Well, luckily we have microbes that have learned to extract energy from these volcanic environments. So instead of getting their energy from the sun, they're getting their energy from the volcanic fluids coming out of the crust. Sometimes it's hydrogen sulfide, sometimes it's methane, hydrogen, and they become the carbon source for all the other life forms we find down there. So those two worms I showed you at the Galapagos, they're right in that shimmery water. They can't get too hot because they'll burn, but they need to be in it enough that the microbes that they are packed full of can extract that chemical energy and grow. They then serve as sort of the plant in the sense that then secondary consumers like crabs, octopus, and fish come and feed on them. So what is this process called? I hear it. 
chemosynthesis, right? So again, fundamental discovery was made here in Woods Hole uh, that really changed how we view life on Earth. So we now know that life can thrive in the deep dark ocean. And again, if it can happen here, maybe it can happen somewhere else. So can life survive beyond Earth in some of these newly discovered ocean worlds? Now, this is a really exciting area of planetary science. It's really been in the last couple decades that we've recognized Earth is not unique in hosting a liquid water ocean. So these are some of the ocean worlds that we know about within our solar system, right? Uh, and they are often at the outer solar system, and so most of them are very cold and ice-covered. But this discovery, this kind of happened at the end of my graduate career and has only increased in the last few decades, knowing that there is liquid water out there with the potential then to host life has really opened up a whole new field of research. So I just want to talk about two of them. The first is this fascinating moon of Saturn. Saturn's like 900 million miles away, just for the record, but this moon is tiny. It's about the width of Arizona or something like that. The cool thing about Enceladus is that this is an actual image. This is not an artist's rendition. This was captured by the Cassini spacecraft in 2009. It's shooting its ocean out into space. These are geysers that are being shot through the ocean shell, and the Cassini spacecraft was able to actually fly through these plumes and capture material, and they measured things like methane, like hydrogen. They found minerals in that water, in that jet coming out. And a lot of subsequent research and modeling said, you know, the best analog for the chemistry we're measuring is actually some of the deep sea volca volcanoes we have here on Earth. So we're working really hard to get back to Enceladus. Another high priority target is Jupiter's moon Europa. Uh, Jupiter, I think, is about 400, 500 million miles away from Earth. It has a Jovian system, has something like 95 moons. And that's important because this ice-covered moon of Europa, it's not a smooth surface. Those red bands that you see on it are actually because the ice is moving and there's some sort of slushy material or salt being produced or forming on the surface of Europa. And that push and pull of the ice is because all these moons in Jupiter, they're, they're creating a bunch of friction. We call it tidal heating. And so you get this fascinating features on the seafloor, on the surface that's potentially bringing this liquid ocean beneath the icy core up to the surface. So this is another really important target looking for an ocean outside of Earth. And based, you know, we don't get a lot of data from the outer solar system very often. And so that Cassini mission, which first got that data, I think in around 2009 uh, from Enceladus, Scientists continue to make better measurements, improve it, model it. And on both of these icy moons, we believe that within that liquid ocean, there is first a rocky core, and B, there is enough of this tidal heating flexing of the rock that you could create hydrothermal circulation. And the question, of course, is if you can have these water rock reactions creating things like methane and hydrogen, could you also have life? Now, these are hard places to get to. But luckily, this fall, NASA is launching a mission to Europa, their Europa Clipper, and in a short five and a half year time frame, uh, we'll be doing 50 uh, roundabouts of that moon. 
to really kind of characterize that icy shell and try to look into it, figure out how thick it is and how deep that ocean is as well. Uh, and we're working on some missions to Enceladus, which takes a bit longer to get to because it's that much farther away. But I think a really important point is that I'm not going to be analyzing the data coming back from these missions, right? This is the next generation of scientists. We might launch them, but the data is going to be yours. And so whether you're a scientist or you're an engineer or you're interested in communicating these findings or you're you know, a person who's super organized and keeps everybody to the clock like NASA is very good at doing, you know, I think it's a really exciting time to be sitting at this intersection of space and ocean exploration. So I encourage you to look for that launch and to stay tuned. Start thinking of questions for Julia. I just want to kick off with one. I know that the Europa Clipper is not designed to bring material back from Europa, but how would you even go about studying something if you got a sample of organic goo from Enceladus or Europa? How would you even go about studying it? Yeah, I think it's important to note none of these missions to the outer solar system are talking about bringing samples back. Uh, everything will have to be done out there, which is technologically very complicated because when I dive in Elvim, I do all my experiments back on the ship or in my lab. Um, but what we've been trying to build out for this dream scenario where we get the goo back is sort of a triage of chemistry and biology uh, where we're looking for biosignatures, right? We're not necessarily directly detecting life, but signatures of life. So a more holistic approach to what we would do. Hi, thank Hi. you so much. I I'm wondering if you could speak uh, from your experience about what is so important about human beings being on these missions underwater as opposed to just collecting by remote vehicles. You know, it's such a small number of people proportionally that get to do that. And so there must be something of immense value. And I just, I love when people can speak to that. Sure. Yeah, and you're also speaking to someone who mo mostly uses remotely operated vehicles given the nature of some of my work. I will say the few times I've dove in Alvin, I mean, if I could do it once a month, I would. It is absolutely breathtaking. It is humbling. Uh, it is very quiet and you feel so close to what you're doing and the perspective you have is very hard to replicate, right? Being able to just lean up into that window and it's right there. That being said, I love sharing with the world through remote operations what we're doing. So now what we can do with remotely operated vehicles, not only can everybody on the ship participate, but we can blast that out through satellite and YouTube so that anybody can watch at any time what we're doing. So that underwater volcano we discovered, the entire ship was going insane. You know, I mean, no one had seen anything like that. So instead of only three people experiencing it, 50 people experienced it. If we had been able to blast that out the world, we could have had millions of people watching. That being said, there's a lot of power to being there, and especially for young people, kind of getting them in the game, getting them down there, experiencing it. You know, I haven't dove in Elvin in over a decade, and I still remember it as clear as day, right? So it was a very, as, as Bruce was speaking to, it was a very grounding experience for my science. And like I said, if I could do it once a month, I would. I know we, we had some questions for Bruce and I had to cut him off. So Bruce, if you want to come up to stage as well, we can uh, tag team if you have questions for either of them now. We have a few minutes left before NASA is going to interrupt us. Can I, can I do a little follow up with the question oh, yeah. about, I, I, that, that's a very good question, by the way. 
about people and bringing them underwater. So I think of it like this, right? When we find life in the outer solar system, there's a darn good chance it's going to happen in your lifetime. I'm confident we're going to find it. It just seems like it's there. We're going to want to go there. It'll be a heck of a mission to get people out there. But I think the collaboration between robotic technology and human technology that's enabling ultimately leads to people going places. And the reason I bring that up is that's what humans do. Think about how people made it to North America. They went to places that were hard to get to that probably they shouldn't even have tried. How did they get to Easter Island in Hawaii? Humans went to places. So we go to places because that's what we do. And I just wanted to, you know, and, and I, let me ask you this question, Julie. If they found life on Europa and NASA called you and said, we need you, you're the only one, would you go? Oh, God. Okay, well. <laughs> but, but you'd be happy if people went, right? I, w I wouldn't even so, go where Laurel is. Laurel would go. <laughs> I feel much better down anyway, there than up there. As a, anyway, as a communications person, I want to add to that and say, we're a curious species. Yes. We, we want to know what's over the horizon, totally. over the next hill. But we, then we want to come back and we want to tell people about it. The, the, the other point I wanted to emphasize was what Julie said is, so Alvin's been around since I was basically born. And it's a new vehicle. It has such a future. And people in this room that are your age, in a matter of years, could, could come out and start working with us and be a pilot. The sub will be around by the time you're in your early 20s. And it's a, the, the world of opportunity in the ocean, if you look at it, there's so much left to discover. So there's a lot of, in the technology and the science side, sky's the limit, there's so much left. That was Bruce Strickrod, Huey's Alvin program manager and Huey Marine microbiologist Julie Huber. Coming up after a break, astronaut and former Huey engineer Laurel O'Hara joins the presentation from the International Space Station. Stay with us. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Point discussing parallels between deep sea and space exploration. Now NASA astronaut and former Huey engineer Laurel O'Hara joins the conversation from the International Space Station. Here's Huey Director of Research Communication, Ken Costell. Hey, look. Do we have, do we have audio? <laughs> Hang on a second. Do we have you, Laurel? Huey, station, com check. We hear you loud and clear, Laurel. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay. You've got a big audience here in, in, at MBL in uh, the former Lilly Auditorium. We've got about 1,000 people online, including a lot of classrooms. Um, I just want to kick things off uh, with the questions. You know, everybody loves seeing the images that you captured of Earth from the ISS, especially the shots of Cape Cod. Those went like wildfire around here for for weeks. How has your vantage point from space changed the way you think about the planet and, and the ocean? Uh, it's a great question, and it's impossible not to be changed by this view. Um, seeing the Earth from space has definitely um, just increased this deep sense of awe I have at the beauty and the complexity and the diversity of life on our planet, and also just deepen the sense of connection I have to the planet. Uh, seeing our seeing earth this beautiful blue and white marble against this backdrop of space actually makes the earth seem really small um, and it really starts to become clear how much we have in common how much humanity shares more so than our differences um, which is just amazing and it gives me an increased sense an increased sense of urgency 
definitely um, to play a role in protecting um, this incredible wealth of life that we have on planet Earth. Thanks. I think we, the next question is from somebody in the audience here. Hi, this is Sebastian from Falmouth High School. And my question is, what are some of the most interesting experiences that you have done in space that can only be done in space? Oh, experiments, sorry. Yeah, so one of the fun parts about this job is the wide array of research that we get to do on Space Station. Everything from printing 3D human hearts um, to making better fiber optics to working with cell cultures to study how um, aging and microgravity affect the immune system, even to combustion experiments, because even flames burn differently in microgravity. Um, the life sciences and the biology experiments have been some of my favorites so far, but it's really been fun to dabble in everything. I think we have somebody who wants to get to some basic physics. Hi, this is me from Rudy from Mullen Hall Elementary School. My question is, how does the space station stay in orbit? That is a great question, and we are actually always falling back towards Earth, pulled in by Earth's gravity. So periodically, we need to do what's called a reboost, where we use thrusters, usually thrusters on the Russian segment of space station, um, to boost us back up to a higher altitude. Got another question from the audience. Hi, this is Torn from Mulhall Elementary School. My question is, where does the water in the toilet go when you go to the bathroom? You knew it, you knew it had to come. Everybody asked about Alvin asked that. <laughs> Also a great question, because actually in space, we don't use water in our toilets. Um, in Earth, water flows um, due to gravity. But since we have no gravity, um, up here, I'll show you. I've got a little demo here about how water behaves in space. It just globs up like this due to the surface tension. Now I got to deal with this. <laughs> uh, so instead, for our toilets, <laughs> We use airflow. So think about your vacuum cleaner at home. And that is how that's the basic principle of how our toilet works. Also a fun fact, uh, we separate number one and number two. And for the liquids, those get recycled and turned into future juices and coffees and waters. There you go. So our, our next question came from Jameson at Morse Pond School here in Falmouth. He couldn't be with us. Um, but he asked, how do you prepare for going to the ISS? What do you pack and what do you, how do you decide what you bring with you? Yeah, so we train for about two years before a space mission, and that includes everything from setting the launch vehicle that we're going to ride from Earth to space station to setting space station systems. Uh, we learn how to use the robotic arm. We continue our spacewalk training. Um, keep learning Russian, and we study a lot of the science, some of the more complicated scientific payloads that we do. But on launch day, I just show up with a spacesuit, basically, um, before the mission, grab people on the ground, organize all of our food, all of our clothes, things like our toothbrush, and that's all waiting on space station for me when I arrive. Grace, I think you have the next question. I do. This is a question from River um, at Mullenhall Elementary School, who couldn't be with us. What is your day like in zero gravity, and what do you do during your free time? Yeah, we usually have the weekends off, so we have a fair bit of free time, about a day and a half a week. Um, and I like to take pictures in Cupola. I've gotten really into photography up here, and we have a couple amazing windows. Cupola is, we like to call it our window to the world. Um, it's just 
kind of a 3D view of that looks down at earth. And so that's been really fun. And then otherwise I like to read a lot, write in my journal and hang out with my crewmates. I think the next question is here. Hi, this is Elena from Morse Pond School. My question is, what's it like to sleep in zero gravity? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some people sleep really well up here and others don't sleep very well. Um, one, because of microgravity and two, because we see so many sunrises and sunsets every day that it can mess with your circadian rhythm. You don't really know what time it is anymore. Um, I fortunately sleep really well. Uh, I love sleeping up here. I think it's better than earth. And the way it works is we have a sleeping bag um, that we zip ourselves into that's attached to the wall with bungee cords. And then you just kind of like float in the sleeping bag. And so for me, I just kind of stick my arms out and I just sort of assume this position. <laughs> Continuing on that theme of what, uh, life on the International Space Station, how's the food? Um, I think the food's great. I'm not a picky eater, but we have a couple options up here. I brought you some examples here. Gonna release all the food out of this bag and then probably let it just fly away. We have a couple options. Some of our meals are dehydrated, so we add water. Uh, we have a lot of tortillas on board, so we eat those a lot. And then we also have these green pouches. These are kind of like MREs, so you just heat them up and they're good to go. These are some of my favorite things, tomato basil soup, tortillas, fish with mango salsa, and then Russian soups. So we also, we trade food with our Russian uh, cosmonaut crewmates as well to get a little bit of variety. So um, several people submitted questions in advance that were asking this, in, including Ashley Strickland, who's the science reporter for CNN. Uh, she asks, how did working with underwater vehicles like Alvin and Jason and diving in an Alvin prepare you for life aboard the International Space Station? Yeah, working on space station is actually really similar to working on a research vessel I found. Uh, for one, getting ready for the expedition is um, very similar. It's a balance of preparation and also adaptability. So you do everything you can to be prepared. You try to think of all the problems you might have and anticipate um, all the training you need, all the equipment you'll need. Um, but then once you get out there, nothing ever goes perfectly according to plan. So you have to be able to adapt and change your plan and use the things that you have um, you know, use the resources that you have on board your ship or on board space station to fix things when they break. Um, you have to be a good teammate. You have to be able to communicate, take care of yourself when things are really hard and you're not getting a lot of sleep. Um, all of those things. Um, I definitely got a lot of good practice um, with those things when I was working on research vessels that I've carried forward to this mission. Hi, this is Lizzie from the Huey MIT graduate program. My question is, what similarity between the ocean and space surprised you the most and why? I'm not sure if it's so much as a surprise, but um, one thing I have found is that just the spirit in the, both communities is the same. Um, it attracts people who are very adventurous, competent, confident, um, good humored. And both of the fields uh, with a lot of our work, um, it's easy to ask like, why? Uh, why go to the moon? Why? study microbes deep in the ocean, study extremophiles. And the answers for all of those questions are the same. And that's to understand how our planet works and understand our place in it. Um, I think the collaboration uh, between ocean, the ocean community and the space community has 
um, been amazing and is a key part of our future going forward. Um, there's already so much exciting work going on and I hope that we just build and build and build on this. Uh, Ms. Curley's class from Barnstable Intermediate School uh, wanted to know, what got you interested in both ocean and space research? Well, I grew up in Houston, Texas, so I grew up with NASA Johnson Space Center right down the road from my house. Uh, so that gave me a really in early interest in the space program in particular. I also, as a child, spent loads of time um, along the Gulf Coast and also um, the South Atlantic Coast going to South Carolina to visit my grandparents all the time. And so those experiences also gave me a really early love of the ocean. I didn't have as much of an exposure to ocean science as a career, so I kind of ended up falling into that later. I was also pretty airplane obsessed when I was a kid, so there's that. Um, but what drew me to both and kept me engaged in both, uh, both worlds um, was the desire to explore, the desire to do meaningful work um, and be a part of something bigger than myself. And then also just hands-on problem solving, managing risk, physical hardship. This robot is just flying around with me during this whole talk. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, ocean and space science have all of those things and it's been amazing. <laughs> Hi, this is Alana from Morse Pond School. My question is, what is the coolest slash most rare thing you have seen in space? I think I say, wow, almost. Uh, like once a day when I look out the windows, every time we fly over the same parts of the planet routinely, but every time it's a little bit different. The lighting's different, the season's different, um, just the time of day is different. And so uh, you see it from a different angle. And so there's always something new and amazing to see. Uh, some of my favorite things lately have been um, sunset over the Himalayas. We've been flying over um, Central Asia kind of right at the Terminator. So right where we're flying from daytime into nighttime. And so we get some really cool shadows and colors in the mountains there. Um, also rivers in Africa have been really neat. And um, yeah, there's, there's always something cool to see out there. So this is a question from Mr. Watts, a teacher in Collinsville, Illinois. And the, his class asks, what STEM fields do you believe are most important for students today to understand for their futures? That's a tough question. Um, and I think, I, I'm not sure there is one in, uh, most important field. And I would also wanna add humanities and arts to that. I think STEAM is really important um, in addition to STEM. Um, I think that the world needs today more than ever well-rounded humans who are capable of um, critical thinking, problem solving, um, who can communicate and understand others, even if they're very different from themselves, um, no matter what their career. Um, um, understanding our place in the world is a critical part of this though. And of course, um, the fundamentals are always important, math, physics, chemistry, biology. Uh, Ms. Christopher is a science teacher in Dennis Yarmouth. And she asks, what advice would you give a sixth grader on Cape Cod about how to have a career in science? Cape Cod might be one of the best places to have a career in science. Uh, but I would say look for opportunities to get experience in the field that you're interested in, whether it's reading books, looking for summer camps, or even talking to scientists and engineers in that field at Huey and other places. Uh, you can find people who are doing really cool things that you're interested in and see what paths that they took um, to get to where they are. 
Um, everyone takes different paths and there's a million different ways to do life, but that can give you some ideas for different options for yourself. And then also don't expect it to be easy. Science is really hard, um, but it's also really rewarding and um, anything worth doing is, all, is going to be hard. Um, if you try something and you fail, uh, don't stop there. Um, you, it shows that you're pushing yourself and you're challenging yourself and there's definitely something to be learned from that. If you're like me, you learn a lot more from your failures than you do from your successes. So those are a good thing. Um, another question from Ashley Strickland at CNN. What are you hoping we'll learn about ocean worlds like Europa from upcoming missions, which you know, Julie told us about just a moment ago? And if you had a chance to visit any of those ocean worlds, where would you go? Yeah, this work is some of my favorite work that's being done in the world right now. I think it's super exciting. Um, and I think like most people, I would be insanely excited if we found life or even any signs of life on any of those planets. Um, I think it would be a dream mission of mine to get to go to one of Jupiter's icy moons like Europa or Enceladus with a little robot, kind of like Orpheus or something else and get to explore the sub-ice sub oceans that are on those uh, icy moons. I think that's the stuff of dreams. Uh, another uh, student at the, in the MIT Hui Joint Program named Kayla, she asks, uh, were there any technologies that you were excited to learn about during your training that you didn't know about before? Yeah, I really enjoyed um, learning, especially about the life support systems on space station. Um, space station is a closed environment, so we recycle our air, we recycle our water, and um, occasionally we have to replenish those. We recycle about 80% of our water, for example. Um, but learning about how we scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and generate oxygen uh, was really interesting. And then I also really enjoyed learning about Soyuz spacecraft systems. Um, the technology is not necessarily new, um, but it works incredibly well and it's extremely elegant in its simplicity. Um, so it's just a beautiful spacecraft. And so studying Soyuz was one of my favorite parts of training. And uh, finally, uh, Ray from La Crescenta Mont Montrose, California asks, what was the most challenging part of your journey to becoming an astronaut? Uh, the, so for me, the most challenging part of this mission and my preparation for this mission was definitely the last couple months on Earth leading up to my first launch, uh, first launch date, because it did get delayed by six months. Uh, but those couple of months were just um, nonstop work. Uh, training was really heavy. So, um, so my days were very full of all different flavors of training. There were also a lot of medical activities going on, getting ready for launch. And then I was just trying to get my personal life in order as well. So I would wake up and pretty much be working all day. Um, and so leading up to that first launch, I hadn't even had a time to sit down and even take a minute to think about what I was going to go do. So in some ways the delay was actually a good thing, but, uh, yeah, those days, um, those last few months of training for all of us are really tough. Um, we have to know a wide variety of subjects and that's sort of the time when we're cramming, so to speak. What do you what do you miss the most about life down on on planet Earth? 
That's an interesting question because I thought this, like the second I got up here, I would really miss being able to go outside. But um, I think it was just kind of brain overload, like being in space and floating around and also just trying to learn everything all at once uh, that I didn't really even have time to think about that. Um, but as I saw, watched winter kind of settle over the Northern hemisphere um, and just see snow blanket everything, I started to really crave winter and snow and just that feeling of being outside on a really cold morning. Um, so I am looking forward to that, although I will miss winter this year. I might have to go find it somewhere. Um, and then <laughs> I would love a bowl of guacamole and chips, seeing all my friends and family jumping in the ocean. If you could look outside, where would you, what would you see right now and what time zone do you operate on? Oh, wait a minute. I've got a map right here. Uh, we're actually approaching the coast of Mexico in Baja, California right now. All right, our, our window is coming to a close here. So I wanna get a message from everybody. So on three, thank you, Laurel. One, two, three. Thank you, Laurel. <laughs> I just wanted to say a huge thanks to Hui and the Woods Hole community, the support and enthusiasm that I felt from all of you from just the time that I even came to NASA all the way through this mission has just been uh, simply amazing and a huge honor. So thank you all for your support. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Laurel. That was NASA astronaut Laurel O'Hara from the International Space Station. This has been a special broadcast of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's presentation about deep sea and space exploration. Thanks to NASA and HUI for audio of the presentation. Laurel O'Hara will be talking with CAI's Patrick Flannery on Morning Edition next week. Stay tuned. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening.